today we have the pleasure of having uh, the president of Greenville Seminary, Dr. Joseph Pipa, in studio to talk again in the 10th edition of our Faith and Practice segment. It's the segment by which you, the listener, get to control the topics and the discussion. In that sense, you write in questions to to us here at the seminary, and then we, well, Dr. Piper, answers your questions that you may have. So if you have questions about this segment, you want more information, you can go to our website at confessingourhope.com. And it, related to that, um, well, it's not really related, but along the lines of having Dr. Piper in the studio uh, this afternoon, it gives him an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the seminary, some of the things that we're doing, and some of the changes we're making um, uh, in the very near future. So, Dr. Piper, why don't you talk with uh, the listeners a little bit about maybe this, the new student orientation that we're starting to, we're turning the corner on now. Thank you very much, Bill, and it's good to be back with you today. For a number of years, we've had a, a perspective student conference on the eve of our spring theology conference. We do the theology conference the first full week of March, Tuesday afternoon through Thursday morning. We started the prospective student conference, and I think every year we've had one student at that conference at least who's then registered the next year at seminary. Uh, But we wanted to make it more useful for prospective students, and so we've changed the format this year. We're going to start formally uh, with a lunch on Monday, March the 9th, meet the faculty and some of the students at that lunch. Then we'll have two classes going on Monday afternoon uh, with a panel discussion at 4 o'clock on Monday afternoon with faculty and some of the speakers for the conference who are here. And then a class Monday night and two classes Tuesday morning and a special chapel. Then the students get a very special discount to be able to attend the theology conference that starts at 1 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. So we're hoping to see a lot more students and their wives at the prospective student conference this year. We do, if students register enough ahead of time, try to provide uh, housing uh, for them during the week as well. And so it's a great time to learn about the seminary and to get to attend one of the best conferences offered each year. This year the conference is on the law, and it's very timely. Yes, thank you, Dr. Piper. And it is, um, I've been to four, well, I've been to four theology conferences. They've all been a blessing. So if you can make time in your schedule and able to be here, then uh, it's strongly encouraged. And I think it'll be well worth your time, edifying and a blessing. Now, as I indicated, we're going to be talking with Dr. Piper, our faith and practice segment number 10. We try to do this once a month, and it is about the time to do it for November. And we have a number of good questions that have been sent in by you, the listener. And so we're just going to jump in, and we're going to deal with these as they were sent in, but more or less. And um, so if you're ready, Dr. Pipa, I'm ready, and I will begin with uh, the first question. Ryan writes in from Escondido, California. That's your old... Yes, stomping ground. Your old stomping grounds. Anyway, Ryan writes in from Escondido, California, and asks this question related to the Sabbath. He says, is doing seminary work... On the Sabbath, a violation of the Sabbath. Certainly it is work that is dwelling on God and the things of God, but it is also uh, a work. Is this a violation? You know, Ryan, that is an excellent question. It's a question ultimately that you'll have to answer in a satisfactory way with your conscience. What I encourage seminary students and professors as well, that if it's completing an assignment for a class, then... I think you're better off not doing that on the Sunday afternoon. Uh, But look at it in a more positive way. You know that your reading schedule is very difficult. You read a lot of things that are important, but not always as edifying. And so what I encourage our students is on Sunday afternoon to uh, keep a good book going that is profitable. Uh, now, it might be of theology. I mean, for example, I read Bob Inc., and I'm very blessed reading Bob Inc. and other systematic theologies, but uh, uh, some of the Puritan paperbacks, of course, John Owen, uh, biographies, sermons. I just think you're better served spiritually to get that change of pace, read some things that are broader than that which is immediately necessary. But 
if you are to read so many pages in Calvin's Institutes and a course, and you want to read that on a Sunday afternoon, and you can do so in a way that you're not just meeting a requirement, but really reading for profit, well, Institutes are profitable any day of the week. So work it out. But the, the main thing to keep in mind is a question I encourage people to use with the Lord's Day is, does this accomplish the purpose of the day in my life? And so what you read, approach it in, in that way as well. And then uh, read then for your spiritual well-being. Hmm. Yeah, it's a very good question. And another uh, listener writes in, now it's obvious to me that he didn't want to be named, um, so we're just going to call him anonymous, or her anonymous, uh, writes in, again, a question on the Sabbath. There are two questions, and Dr. Pipe, do you want to take these individually or as yes. a lump, as a whole? We'll okay. do them separately. Okay, so the first question of two, two different questions <laughs> is this. How would you respond to the arguments that we know the first and second century Christians worked on the first day of the week without any obvious efforts to take the day off? Why should we be different? Now, let's also, Bill, get the background of that question, which I think is important as well. Christian Sabbath questions. Uh, yes. Well, that's your summary. From a family trying to remember the day in the midst of elders and fellow congregants who see it legalistic. Yes, I'm sorry. And so the, uh, I, I believe that our hearer is – our questioner is getting this uh, challenge. Uh, let me just remind all of you who will listen either live today or in the podcast later. Legalism only means that you're trying to earn acceptance and favor with God by your works or you're pursuing works that are not revealed in Scripture. People often confuse precision and legalism. Mm. Precision is good because our God is a precise God who has precisely revealed his will. Plus, the day is not a burden to us. We keep these things because we have great delight in them. Now, we don't know a lot about first century Christians, but we know that, for example, slaves would have, have had to work on the Lord's Day, and that would have been a deed of necessity. <clears throat> uh, but we don't. And so, again, we approach the day in terms of, and I like the way the confession puts it, these deeds of necessity and mercy are part of Sabbath keeping. They're not just exceptions. They're part of how we serve God on the Sabbath. But if we're freed from those things, then we should revel in having a day uh, to spend um, with God uh, in the pursuit of the, our sanctification, of communing with God. That day, I prefer to begin with morning worship and to end with evening worship and then to use means in between uh, for spiritual and physical rest. So the difference is not why should we be different. God in his providence put many of those early Christians in a situation where they had no freedom. But it's kind of foolish for us to try to put ourselves in that situation. We have great freedom. It's not necessity. It's preference when a person decides to work or to cause others to work on the Lord's Day in a manner uh, that is not consistent with Scripture. Yeah, helpful if I unmute myself. Well, the second question, again, is related to the Sabbath. Same individual writes in, says, We have older children, younger teens, who have little interest in keeping the Sabbath. We have and continue to instruct them, but beyond that, we are. what are some practical tips to help them use the day profitably without it becoming drudgery to them? And that's a very important question. And, again, I shall unashamedly push my book. I actually, in the book, The Lord's Day, uh, have a, a chapter devoted to how we uh, use that day to help our children learn to delight in the Sabbath. Uh, we need to create opportunities for, I mean, you're doing right to teach them and to structure the day, but it's very important that we create opportunities for them. Have a family reading circle. Uh, there are now very good Christian videos. Let the older children read to younger children. Uh, take them on service outings. You know, Take your children to visit the shut-in, or go to the nursing home and take part in a nursing home uh, ministry. Uh, make it a very special family uh, time, and 
let it not be a drudgery. Now, if they're unconverted, it's going to be a drudgery. But it's also a great means they got to use to their conversion. And so you prayerfully pursue those things. Make it a delight for yourself and try to structure it in a way uh, that they delight in it. And if you want to follow up with this, either contact me directly or get that book and, and read that chapter. Yeah, very good question. And we do offer that book as a way of reminder um, for those who write in and we use your question on the air. Um, you can select a book uh, from a list that we have on the ConfessingOurHope.com website, and that happens to be one of the books that we good. give away. So um, if you're interested, um, you know, write in. I know you didn't leave your name, so I, I have no way of contacting you. But um, if you're listening and you did write in these questions, if you want to contact me privately, my email address is bhill at gpts.edu, and we can send that to you postpaid. So just let me know, and I'll be glad to take care of that We've for you on this end. Bill? Um, no. Yeah. I do? Yeah, you do. Look. Well, I'll show you later. You got his name. Yeah, show me later. Okay. All right. Well, um, where are we? Oh, yes, I see where we are. All right. So those are the two Sabbath day questions. Oh, excuse we, me. I we, guess he made up the address. You got his name. It made up the address. Yeah, I okay. see. So yeah. if you will uh, uh, just email to Bill your address, we'll be glad to send you that book free. Yep, absolutely. All right. So we dealt with the two questions on the Sabbath, and we put those together for obvious reasons. And now we're going to deal with um, really are some really outstanding topics and subjects. Uh, starting with Eric, uh, writing in from uh, Pennsylvania, he asks, it's a very, again, lengthy question. I guess I'll just read this as he sent it, and then uh, Dr. Piper can stop me if he feels like he needs to to interact with it. But uh, anyway, here it comes. He says, my question concerns the relationship between the church and the state. I was wondering if you would present what you think is the biblical position regarding that relationship. For instance, let's say that a president or a king becomes a believer while they are are yet in a position of power. Would it be the king's job to enforce God's laws upon all the people, even if a vast number of them are unbelievers? Or would it be his job to keep his faith to himself and not let it affect his political decision-making? Or is there a middle ground? Let's stop right there. Okay. Right, this is a, an excellent question, and it's, it's a, with multiple aspects, so I think we'll try to take it a section at a time. Uh, the first thing we have to do and clarify in our terms, Eric, is recognize that a king or a president in today's culture is going to be in some kind of constitutional government. And so um, a leader of state who is converted while he's in office is by his vow responsible to uphold the laws of his country. And so now in our own country, in America, we have a constitution. Now, he's to uphold that constitution. He sees then that there are unbiblical laws, <clears throat> such as the current laws on same-sex marriage or abortion. He may turn his power to try to get members in his party to write legislation uh, outlawing these things. And so he may aggressively pursue uh, the enactment of righteous laws, but he may not uh, abuse his power and enact them on his own. Now, it's not keeping his faith private, though. One of the things I appreciated about uh, President Bush was he was very open about how he prayed over things, how he daily read the Scripture, uh, and how the Scripture did influence his decisions. Now, unfortunately, he was not well mentored. He was in probably a much more liberal church, but he was very open about his faith and didn't keep it to himself, and it did affect his political decisions. Now, it should affect them a lot more. You know, you get a Christian who's elected to office, that would mean he wouldn't campaign on Sunday, that he would do deeds of necessity on Sunday. But, you know, I appreciate the presence in the past. We don't know what always their spiritual state was, but uh, they were they were in church. Um Reagan ended up after, I think, the assassination attempt. He didn't like to disrupt services, so he would have services at, uh, at the White House. But, um, <clears throat> and so there's lots of uh, personal decisions, how he runs his family, how he relates to his staff, how he's going to treat truth 
Is his press secretary going to be lying every time he gets uh, in front of a microphone? So there, there are a lot of, of decisions that he will make as a leader that he can immediately affect by his conversion. And he should try to affect um, uh, getting legislation that would be consistent with uh, Scripture. Now, I speak more of a president, but even kings today, for the most part, are parliamentary kings, and they are subject uh, to the laws of, of the land. Let's continue now. So let me just do The Sabbath is an example. It would seem the king has the following options available when it comes to people working on Sunday in a non-essential job. Bill, you read those options. Okay. Well, he goes on to give the Sabbath, as has just been indicated, as an example of this application of this particular question. And he says, number one, could the king declare it illegal for any non-essential business to be open on Sunday? Or two, uh, he could be completely hands-off and let businesses decide for themselves when to be open though he would publicly recommend or encourage businesses not to be open on Sundays. Or possibly, number three, he could pass a law that protects Christians from being punished by secular businesses if those believers do not wish to work on Sundays. Okay. Now, one and three really are not options, Eric. Um, He can't declare anything illegal. Even, again, most—I mean, a dictator can. But people that we're talking about in parliamentary monarchies or presidents or prime ministers— uh, cannot uh, pursue just saying, I'm going to shut everything down. I think that he should immediately use the bully pulpit and explain why all non-essential uh, activities should be curtailed on the Sunday and set an example himself. Yes, he should uh, at least get legislation that protects Christians from being punished, but I would go a step further and say that I would like to see Christian legislators go back to what was called the blue laws, which simply meant that non-essential uh, stores, retail stores, etc., were all closed mm. on the Lord's Day. And we had those laws, and they've been overturned in state after state. Well, they can be brought back. Now, you talk about the highest magistrate. But if you're really interested in the Christian worldview and politics, let me uh, point out that the place that changes can happen are in the city and county government and then in state government. Calvin and the Institutes, and by the way, in connection with this, I commend to you the last chapter of Book 4 of the Institutes, where Calvin deals with the relationship of the magistrate to the, the Christ and the church, the state that the the civil magistrate may lead against the uh, higher magistrate if the higher magistrate has enacted laws that are unrighteous. So, for example, a county, a city, even a state could enact uh, laws such as Texas did that basically outlawed abortion except in seven clinics by simply requiring uh, high medical procedures uh, to take place Tennessee now is trying to do this because Tennessee, I heard on the radio when I was up there a couple of weeks ago, is the number four state in the nation, where, or maybe the second, where one out of four abortions in Tennessee are out-of-state people because they're just so easy to get. So mm. they're working on legislation uh, to do things like that. Arizona, and they haven't got a lot of press, has just passed an amendment to their constitution that uh, federal law does not trump state law, which is in the federal constitution, amendment think, number 10. So again, they're saying we're going to our laws are going to take primacy in our state. And so really the place for Christians and and I like to see Christians in the political arena is to begin is at these areas where they can uh, enact laws that would go right in the face of um of the federal government. But um a Christian who a man converted then ought to bend his efforts to getting laws passed that are consistent with the Word of God, not persecutory laws. Well, that's probably not a word. Not laws that persecute, but laws that do honor the first four laws as well as the last six laws of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, very good question, and, and as it as it 
as it is, relates quite well, especially in our climate we find ourselves today. Um, I didn't know that about Arizona, Dr. Piper. That's a very interesting. I wonder why other states have not jumped on that. I bet you they will not. I wonder why the uh, national press hasn't uh, talked well, about it. <laughs> do, we, do we really have to wonder long about that? I, you know, it's uh, Even Fox News, you know, I mean, as much as I like Fox News, doesn't always talk about these issues okay not, not those are things for another day next question comes from randall um and he writes in from missouri uh, and it's a really good question uh, very practical he asks could you please share some resources for training ruling elders and then he goes on uh, to say uh, we've got a young man in our congregation who appears to have potential for going to seminary and as elders we are trying to help him discern whether he may be called uh, to the ministry. Can you please share some wisdom in this regard to enable us to serve this brother and the congregation well? So it's really two questions. Yeah. Randall, thank you. And thank. We, it was good to see you last week when you came on campus to visit with us. Sorry that you missed Bill. Um, actually, in the last podcast, I gave a long list of books for training ruling elders. And so that's podcast number nine. And you can get back to that and uh, review uh, those books. I actually missed that part of the question, so I'm glad we did that. Um, but there's a, a, a good list there for you. Uh, the second one is very important. Hmm. You know, statistics are that uh, some 50% of men five years out of seminary are out of the ministry. And I think uh, that really ties into the whole matter of understanding a call or not understanding a call to ministry. I think men think that ministry is going to be a piece of cake. Uh, and as you well know, Randall, is not. Uh, so I appreciate the fact that your elders are investing in this man. And that's what we encourage at Greenville Seminary. Uh, when men come here, we they have to have both a recommendation from ruling elder and from the pastor are equivalent to ruling elder in terms of a spiritual leader in the church. Uh, there's a couple of excellent resources there. Uh, Ed McClowney's little booklet on call to the ministry, and then Al Martin has a series of tapes on call to the ministry. You can find those, I imagine, on Sermon Audio. Uh, and uh, they're very, very useful. Again, in the biblical theologies I mentioned in podcast nine, many of them have chapters as well. When we talk about call of the ministry as Presbyterians, we break it down into the external and internal call. The external call consists of uh, desire, but gifts. And those gifts are to be tested by the local church. The external call, then, is when the Church courts and a congregation recognize these things in a man and call him then uh, to serve as their pastor. But the internal call is very important, and this is where the home church uh, comes to play. So you make sure the man is growing in godliness. You look at his life in terms of the qualifications from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. You look at his family life and how is he doing there and is he growing if he has a wife and her children, uh, and then you give him opportunities to minister, to teach Sunday school class, to participate maybe at first leading prayer in prayer meeting and then at public worship, uh, take him to visit, either evangelistic visit or a home visit or a shut-in or something like that, and watch him in those different uh, situations and help him develop his gift. Now, the two things ought to work together, that the internal call as he does these things, if he is called by the Lord, is going to intensify as he gets involved. In my own experience, without any concept of a call to the ministry, I had people, as an, when I was a new Christian, I was, I was pushed into ministry. I was taken out to do street evangelism. I was at the um, uh, uh, military, USO, whatever they call the thing, uh, one night a week witnessing. I was going with a lady to the homes of poor people and uh, reading scripture and praying. And, you know, I never had thought about gifts, but I, I realized that I had a, a love for these things. And doing them, that created. And so really, in my case, I was, by the time I was a junior in high school, I had a very subtle conviction. I was called to the ministry because I was pushed into situations. Now, I was not really 
overseen by the elders as I should have been. But um, those are the kind of things that we can do to um, help men. And as a seminary, we want men like that. We want men that have been vetted and uh, watched over carefully and then come to seminary. The man's going to do better in seminary, and he also is going to do better in long-term ministry. Now, in connection with that, for all the others who will listen to this, we think it's very important when a congregation sends a man to seminary that they send a man to seminary, which means they help him out financially as well. Mm. Don't say, go be full and be warm, but enable him. Uh, And we've got a couple of ways you can do that. If the congregation resources are limited, we have the tuition waiver program. If it's a supporting church, the student comes tuition-free. But we have had students that have had both that as well as uh, the church committing to so much money a year. It's just, think about it in terms of a missions budget. You invest in a man who's going to go out there and plant a church or pastor a church. There's uh, not much better use for mission budget money than that. Hmm. Yeah, very good question. And and this might be a great time to to even... Uh, state or, or talk briefly, uh, since we have the president of the seminary in the room, um, to talk about a little more fully um, how the seminary uh, operates as far as donations um, and, and why we do what we do, and uh, maybe even f- more fully talk about the tuition waiver program and maybe even give some contact information. If okay. there's some people out there that yeah. might be, we have the time, we're doing good on, we're doing well on time, so um, be a good opportunity for. For this, to, good. this good place to do it, and go to you can go online and look at our catalog, and this is also explained in there. But uh, if a congregation now it's just been changed, we haven't changed it in over ten or twelve years. If a congregation is giving ten dollars, uh, twenty dollars a year per communicant member, with a minimum of a thousand dollars for small congregations, then um, they can have one student come to the seminary with tuition waived. Now, our tuition is already by far the least expensive in the nation. It's two-thirds to three-fourths what most schools charge. Um, That student then, for 13 weeks a semester, does four hours of work on campus because we can't afford the same kind of of, um, help because of this program that others can't afford. So this semester, almost 50% of our students are on tuition waiver. And that creates a lot of pressure for us, but it's also great for uh, the students. So very, very pleased uh, about that uh, program to be able to, to do that. Uh, when churches get involved in a man's life, it's, it's better. There's an OP pastor up in the Charlotte area, and I think his church, well, they invested heavily in him. Uh, the whole, time, whole four years he was in seminary, but now he's doing a great job. His church has planted another church, which is going to be organized at the end of this month. And so that's the kind of, you know, casting your bread on the water. Mm. Um, Other thing we're working on, if you're interested in this, we've got, um, we just got some great seed money for foreign student scholarships. Now, we've been committed to third world students that they raise whatever they can. They have to get themselves here raise whatever they can, and we from our supporters will raise living expenses and we waive the tuition. We've just got seed money now for $20,000 for foreign student scholarship. Now, I want to keep that seed money. I want to build that up so that we can take the interest of that and help these students. And we have the same kind of scholarships that we're hoping to build up uh, for um, students from North America. And so there's things that we want to do down the road by God's grace that will enable us yet to do more to help students. Yeah, very good. And if you do have any more questions other than the website, um, you can write. It's info at gpts.edu, and the individual there um, that handles those emails um, is directly connected to this program and and can answer just, I would say, every question you could probably come up with on this subject and and can be very helpful um, if you do have more questions. Well, moving on. Next question. Uh, thankfully, it's I don't have to read a long page. That's coming yet, though. It is. Uh, the next page. Um, anyway, Troy writes in from, um, from Wisconsin, and he asks, uh, it's a great question. 
Um, it's one that we, uh, the students here, we, we discussed and talk about this a lot. But anyway, here's the question. Could you explain the differences between the two, two and a half, and three office view? Also, how the different sides defend their perspectives from Scripture. Troy, very good. Uh, first, let me give the summary of the three positions. The two-office view is that you have the office of elder and the office of deacon, and that the uh, all elders are ordained to exactly the same function, which is to pastor, preach, and teach. Some elders will be better trained and can kind of take the leadership in those uh, areas of responsibility, but it's a very flat two-office view. This is often in uh, many of now of our covenant uh, Reformed Baptist-type churches. Now, on the other hand, uh, is the three-office view, which was uh, probably the, off, the idea of at the Westminster Assembly. They didn't have this the highest view of the eldership. Um, it was carried on by uh, Hodge at uh, Princeton in American Presbyterianism. And this is the view that uh, you've got uh, the office of deacon, the office of ruling elder, and then the office of uh, a minister. This would be traditionally the view of, say, your Dutch Reformed churches, uh, and uh, probably uh, it's been historically the position of a lot of the Orthodox uh, Presbyterian churches. But within the three-office view, you see it functions in two ways. Some have a very low view of the ruling elder and see him only as a ruler in the church. And thus he functions with the other ruling elders in making important decisions with respect to theology and practice in the life of the church, our church discipline. Now others with three office view would be three office, but they would still see that the ruling elder should be involved in pastoral care and that he can take part in pastoral visitation, (coughs) read scripture, pray in corporate worship. The, uh, what's been called the two-and-a-half office view was articulated most clearly uh, by the Southern Presbyterians, Dabney and Thornwell and others, and was basically the view of the Presbyterian Church in America when it was formed, and it is the view of Greenville Seminary. And this is you, you have two offices of elder, but within the office of elder, you've got uh, two ordinations. All elders rule. Both the minister and the, quote, ruling elder all participate in the ruling and governance of the church and all participate in pastoral care and oversight. But that the uh, function of preaching is a peculiar office that is also an extraordination and so let's, when I say extraordination, it wouldn't be if a man like myself, I went straight from seminary and was ordained as a minister. But we have students here at the seminary who have been ordained as ruling elders. In fact, Bill Hill is a ruling elder. Now, by our system, when he gets a call and becomes uh, a teaching elder, he will be ordained to preach the word. And the beauty and uniqueness of this, it's an ordination to the word. Now, I'm going to give you the uh, biblical rationale for this position. Now, let me just say this. You go back and read Hodge on what the Bible says about elders, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, and he applies all of that to the minister. But at the end of the day, you read him, and there's almost nothing in the Bible about ruling elders. Uh, Whereas we take this to be the office of elder, and all elders must have these qualifications. But the distinction, I think, is spelled out in two places. In Romans chapter 12, as the Apostle Paul is instructing the church, calling us to humility and not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, talks about gifts, verse 5, Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now notice, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving 
or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I believe that we have here seven gifts, and the only gifts that belong to uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three of these gifts are clearly diaconal gifts. Six of the gifts are clearly ruling elder gifts. Prophecy is the gift that belongs to the man who's been called by Christ to preach. Now, he is an elder, and when he sits with the other elders, he's a ruling elder, but he has this gift of prophecy. So two chapters later, I said two passages, actually we'll go to three. In Romans chapter 14, when Paul asked his series of, no, Romans chapter 10, when he asked his series of rhetorical questions, and he gives, the after giving the gospel uh, promise, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever will call on him, the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him whom in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Now, by itself, this could uh, uh, we could imply from this that there is just the teaching, preaching office and the ruling office. But when we do that in the context of the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and then we look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, obviously, here all elders are put together. The elders who rule, but the elders who rule alongside their preaching and their teaching. Uh, this word translated in the New American Standard especially is a, a word that Paul uses often in the pastoral epistles. It can mean especially or namely. And I take it namely here. The elders are real well and are being considered worthy of double honor, namely those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So they're elders. All elders are to rule. But those who are worthy of double honor are those who devote themselves as to preaching and teaching. That double honor is the honorarium. And Paul will go on and talk, has already spoken about the need to uh, feed the ox, thus pay, uh, pay the minister. And so uh, all of these are legitimate views in terms of the practice of the church. I think the healthiest church either has the two, five, or the three and I have no problem with three as long as the elder is respected. He is in the people's homes along with, of course, today we don't have ministers in people's homes either, so it's, it's worse. He participates uh, in the full life of the church. Now, one of the practical areas this works out, and this is one of the differences between the Presbyterian Church in America and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, is the Presbyterian Church in America has what we refer to as the parity then of the eldership. Because we are committed to the full office of elder, <laughs> every, all of our church committees, all of our commissions must have an equal number of ruling and teaching elders for a quorum. And that really, I believe, shows the proper respect to the ruling elder. Whereas in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and other Reformed uh, groups, of, or th the three office, the church constitution itself does not require that. I've taken part on ordination commissions that had one ruling elder and the rest teaching elders. So that couldn't happen uh, in a church that really recognizes that. So there are some practical uh, things as you work it out. Yeah, it's a very good question, and it was debated heavily, as Dr. Pipe has already indicated, um, between a great stalwart Southern Presbyterian, Thornwell, and the Northern Presbyterian, Charles Hodge, and they extensively wrote on this. And so I would commend those writings to further... Um, unpack this issue, but it's a great question because it affects really, I think, doesn't it, Dr. Piper? It affects the life of the church mm -hmm. and how it's applied uh, day to day. It, right. It's not just a theoretical right. thing. It, it's really important. Let me do a, a digression here because we're often asked the question, why do you make so much of the Southern Presbyterian writers? And today, again, because of some of the views of social views that they held to, uh, we are greatly criticized. We use these men for a number of reasons. One was they're highly committed to uh, an experimental theology. Their theology was always taught with a heart to God and worship. 
missions was emphasized in the Southern Church above any other Reformed Church as far as I'm concerned, and church life and polity. Mm. Uh, these are things that we have learned so much uh, from uh, these men that uh, it would be foolish to cut our—it'd be just as foolish not to read Calvin because he participated in the death of Servetus as not to read these men because they say some unfortunate things with respect to race relationships. Well, they were men with clay feet, and I think we forget that sometimes. And we'll only have to get in heaven and discover our own clay feet. Yep, that's right. We've got them, too. So, well, let's move on. We have, uh, just to give Dr. Piper, he can't see all of the things that I have in front of me on my screen as far as time and all the audio and what it's doing, and that's why in the beginning of this program, which, by the way, I failed to state, is, is we do the faith and practice segments live. Uh, it's the only ones that we do live, at least right now. I'm hoping to change that a little bit as we go forward. But uh, just to give you a time check, Dr. Pepper, we're at night. We have a, just a little under 20 minutes to go. Yep. So just just for your With only two questions. information. Well, yeah, but question five comes in from um, a man I'm looking forward to getting to know more. Um, he, he's uh, going to be a new student starting in January. And um, I, I already know him a little bit, and um, I'm very excited about him. And um, anyway, he writes in. Drew writes in from um, from Florida, and it's a lengthy question, so I'm going to read. And then again, you can stop me as you feel like you need to, um, and uh, we'll just press on. He writes, I have a question about the teaching concerning heavenly rewards. As I have studied, I have found this notion difficult to square with the scriptures. But as I have never heard anyone outrightly say that this teaching is false, it occurs to me that what I may be suffering from is an unclear uh, an unclear exposition of what is meant by this teaching, or may simply be an error myself. So if you will indulge my long explanation question, I would greatly appreciate the insight you can offer here. If all that is meant by heavenly rewards is that in the age to come there will be differing degrees of knowledge and communion with God, even as we observe such a difference among believers in this age, then I can understand that. Similarly, if, that, if what is meant is that God will bless according to one's actions, according to their stations, such as how a farmer in this age will reap the fruit of the crops he's planted, whereas one who has not will naturally not reap, then that too is not something with which I have a problem. However, the teaching as I've understood it uh, does not work along those lines. I've generally understood it to mean that while salvation is by grace through faith alone, the quality of our life in the age to come is determined by the acts we perform in faith. I find this notion problematic for a couple of reasons. First, I see little scriptural support for it, and the passage that I have most commonly seen used in support of it is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. is not speaking to that issue at all. Second, it seems to cut against the grain of the way the Bible speaks about salvation as a whole. Since communion with the triune God, union with Christ himself, and all the benefits in him are our inheritance, the notion that there is something in addition to that which we should anticipate and strive to receive seems foreign to the biblical teaching on salvation in the life of the age to come. It also seems to be at odds with reason, since it seems to imply that our communion and union with Christ in the age to come is a state that can be improved. Interesting. So I submit this hoping for some clarity on the issue. Am I simply wrong in the doctrine is well-supported scripturally, counter to what I've believed. Have I misunderstood the doctrine? Am I close to hitting the mark here at all? Thank you for your time and consideration. On and on it goes. Okay, Drew. <clears throat> I would commend to you the uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones's uh, sermon. I think it's probably the first sermon in his Sermon on the Mount where he gets into the Beatitudes, and he lays out the matter of heavenly reward our rewards period in the Christian life. Um, there are rewards. Now, they're clearly by grace. Uh, it'd be, I asked my grandchild to do a task that um, they're not going to perform it at the level that uh, their parents could do it if I asked them to do it. Uh, but they do it out of love for me with sincerity, and I promised them if they did it, I would give them a reward. I do so out of love, and uh, it's the sincerity of their action, the faith, so to speak, not the perfection of the action. So in terms of your correct understanding, yes, there's obviously when we go to heaven, we're going to begin where we end. So wherever we are here is where we're going to pick up. 
And this is part of laying up treasure for yourselves in heaven, Matthew uh, chapter 6. And so we're not going to all be on the same footing in terms of knowledge and perhaps in terms of service and responsibility that are given to us uh, in heaven. Now, as you seem to, and you have no problem with that, um, your third paragraph, while salvation is by grace through faith alone, the quality of our life in the age to come is determined by the acts we perform in faith. I think your problem there is your misunderstanding of salvation. Salvation by faith alone has to do with our acceptance by Christ in justification. Now, our obedience also is to come out of faith, but our faithful obedience as newly born again children of God is part of our final salvation. So that there is uh, rewards. And we've got the parable of five and ten and fifteen, that's the wrong percentage, of one, five, and ten talents, whatever it is. We've got, uh, we've got those, uh, that's another good section to look at in terms of, uh, of heavenly rewards. They're all by grace, They're not according to merit or perfection of obedience. And we might not fully understand what that entails. But I'm wondering why you take exception to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because Paul seems to be saying there, at least as I understand it, that uh, there's going to be a class of ministers saved barely by the skin of his teeth, and he's not going to have then the same... Uh, measure of reward, whatever that means, he will receive a, if a man's work which he's built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. There's obviously a gradation of the blessings and pleasures of heaven. Now, I think it's more in our capacity the communion with Christ objectively cannot increase, but my capacity for communion with Christ will increase. My capacity to begin to go more deeply into the divine truths of Scripture will increase. And so I think it's more in terms of what you've yourself seen, and that is that um, we are going to uh, profit more on the basis of what we uh, what we do here, uh, there can be more accolades in the day of judgment when the Christians judged, and uh, Christ will, I believe, honor those who faithfully lay down their lives as martyrs and those who uh, live the Christian life in the midst of awful, horrendous uh, challenges and persecutions, and so I think that honor from Christ is going to be part of it as well. So I probably have confused you more than helped you, but I think that the um, salvation, justification is by faith alone. But remember, the Bible says, pursue that sanctification without which no one shall see the Lord. Faith of the believer obeys. The chapter in the Confession of Faith on Faith says that the faith that heeds commandments and obeys them is the same Faith is saving faith. But saving faith alone is how we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ and pardon for our sins. But the faithful believer is going to pursue holiness, and God is going to express pleasure in him and has kind of left it in the dark in terms of exactly how that pleasure will manifest itself in heaven. So we... We, above all, honor and, and look forward to being with Christ. But, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones will deal in that section with the motivations that are connected with this as well. Very good. And, of course, Drew, as you come on campus and you're a student, you'll have opportun more opportunities to 
pick Dr. Piper's brains. Um, he loves that in class, by the way. Just a little tip. He likes those kinds of questions in classes. So, uh, so I'll see you in Introduction to Reform Theology next semester. That's right. That's right. Um, if Dr. Piper doesn't object, I want to skip question six. And because of time, I want to get to question eight. Uh, we've dealt with that issue with question six. We can come back to it on the next edition. Okay. Um, and I do want to deal with question eight. They're both very practical questions, and I think um, good will just be easier, I think, to answer in the, the 12 minutes we have okay. remaining. Um, so, again, Anonymous writes in and uh, asks two different questions, so I'll just take them in order, and we'll just deal, we'll deal with them that way. Number one, uh, should a church member who is struggling with a besetting sin abstain from the Lord's Supper? If an elder notices a church member abstain from the Lord's Supper, is it appropriate for the elder to ask the member about it? Okay, thank you, Miss Anonymous. The um, we have to define our terms. Uh, besetting sin. We're talking about a person who's wrestling against sin and has certain sinful weaknesses, and we're not talking about a person who is groveling in sin. So. The one who says, well, my besetting sin is this, and I just can't help myself, that's very different. I take this question to be the one who knows that they wrestle with certain sins, as all of us do, and consciously wrestle with those sins. We confess them, and we press on knowing that we have this lifelong struggle. Such a person should not abstain from the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is the means, one of the means to strengthen us. When I come to the Lord's table, it's these sins that I'm wrestling with that I lay out before Christ. And uh, I ask for help as he would feed me and give me grace and strength. And so uh, I come, I, when I do the table, and I love to do the Lord's Supper, I say that we're coming here with palsied hands, we can barely bring our hand to our mouth. We are so aware of our frailties and our weaknesses. But we come to feed on Christ. And so if an elder notices a church member abstaining from the Lord's Supper, the elder should approach. That's why we have elders distributing the Lord's Supper, mm, mm-hmm. to be sure that those under discipline don't take and that those who are not under discipline do take and recognize that if someone has not taken the Lord's Supper, there's either, well, you understand you've excommunicated yourself. So either you should have because you're living in sin, or you shouldn't have because you're wrestling with sin. And the catechism is very clear. Lack of assurance is no reason to stay away. Wrestling with sin and proper preparation is no reason to say stay away. Um, let's say you left the house that morning, you had a fuss with your wife, and you're brokenhearted about it. You've not had time really to ask her forgiveness, but you've prayed and asked God to forgive you. Um, you've maybe whispered in your ear, forgive me, and there can be no further conversation at that point. But you don't stay away from the Lord's Supper then, as long as your heart's broken over that sin. And so elders that are doing their job are going to question those who abstain. Uh, to see if there is a spiritual problem, or to encourage them, you must not abstain because you're really hurting yourself spiritually. Very good question. And the second question, same individual, um, and there's really two questions here, so I'm going to, I want to deal with those separately, because I think they are separate um, issues. Um, First half of question number two, how should the session deal with a member who stops attending or appears to be slowing down in attendance. Right. And I'm assuming that this attendance is in worship. Yes, we're saying worship, and we're saying this person is a member. Um, when I pastored in Houston, what I tried to get the elders to do, if one of their particular parishioners for whom they were responsible missed, and nobody knew if they were out of town or sick, they're to get a phone call. We missed you at church today. Is everything okay? Yeah, I was sick or, or whatever. I was out of town. Okay. Uh, that happens a second week, uh, and uh, the elder calls back and begins to get a bit of a runaround or no answer at all. Uh, then uh, there needs to be a church a visit. That uh, we, we let these problems get way out of hand. 
If a person has missed uh, services two weeks in a row and they're not sick or out of town, there's a problem. And the elders need to um, uh, try to find out, you know, what's going on? Is there something that we've done? Is there something in your life? Uh, now, you know, if the church is involved in regular pastoral visitation, a lot of this is nipped in the bud. If you've got an elder in your home, elder or pastor, every six months saying, is everything fine? Any problems with the church? You're profiting from the preaching? And give people an opportunity. But um, there needs to be a, a progressive schedule worked out so that letting this thing get out of hand, you know, if a person has missed a church five, six weeks in a row, they need to be already called to come and meet with the session. They should have already had a visit and called in to meet with the session to uh, talk about what's going on. Again, people have this retail approach to a church membership. Uh, it's You're not free when you get unhappy to go elsewhere. You took vows. Mm-hmm. And the Lord does not take Lightly, the person who takes his name lightly and breaking a vow is taking God's name lightly. And so if you need in conscience to to change, then you need to go to the session and explain your problem and ask permission. And they're going to ask you, well, now can you work this problem out? Have you tried to work it out? And we might ask you to stay three months and work on this. Or we might say we understand there's a theological difference and um, go with our blessing. So session become much more proactive then the, the the second half of question two is, would the session do anything different if several families are leaving at once, all giving various reasons or excuses? Well, the session needs to get very proactive in that case. Um, several families leaving at once, unless they're moving out of town, is not normal. And there's going to be a underlying pastoral problem or interrelationship problem within the church. And so they're actually going to become even more proactive in that situation in terms of being in the people's homes and uh, finding out what's going on. Again, it's when the people come in, though, is when we need to be very clear what these vows mean and that uh, if you want to leave this church down the road, you've got to understand you've taken a vow and you need to do this with great seriousness and care and not from some flighty reason or with no reason at all. But there's obviously a problem if several families leave all at once that needs to be addressed. Yep. Very good questions and, and very practical um, as well. Well, we're out of time. Um, I, I would have loved to uh, I, get to the other question, I, but as I said earlier, I think we've dealt with it extensively. Um, it, it doesn't mean we're not going to deal with it. Uh, but well, let me a- just say, it's a question about uh, what the Puritans believed about republication, and we'll deal with that next month, Lord willing. And also, I'll address that somewhat in one of my addresses at our conference in March. Yep, and it's a great segue for the conference. Uh, we've already talked about it a little bit, but just if you're interested um, in, in our Spring Theology Conference, we do it every year. We've been doing it for a long time. Um, this year's conference, is on the, the topic is on the law of God. Uh, in our climate today, uh, it's 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 very appropriate discussion. And... Um, so if you're interested in information, uh, just simply go to our website, gpts.edu. It's right there in the banner that's moving across the screen in our newly designed website. And so you'll find the information there, who's going to be speaking and what the topic is going to be. More information is coming out in, almost on a daily basis now uh, out of the seminary, and we're actively planning for a, really what I um, trust is going to be an exciting conference uh, this year. So go to the website, and there you'll find the information. As far as what is coming up on the program the best place to get that information, because I don't always have all my facts in front of me. Um, I kind of know mentally, but anyway, go to the website, confessingourhope.com, and there there's a, a menu item, broadcast coming up or something to that effect, and there you'll see the list of people, individuals that we'll be discussing and talking about and the topic of discussion. So that's the best place to get the information. And, of course, you can always get the mobile app, uh, download it for your Android and or i and or ios device well some households have both <laughs> some people have both i'm getting the look across the table but anyway be that as it may what you left out what, oh well we won't talk about that i knew i shouldn't have brought that up but anyway a little humor it's not a bad thing all right so until next time 
when we sit down with, I believe uh, the person I'm speaking with is Peter Barnes. It's really an interesting, going to be an interesting discussion because I'll be talking with him all the way. I'll be here, of course, uh, but he'll be in Australia. So it, we've been juggling the time zones and all the good stuff with that. But uh, we'll be talking with him um, about an article he wrote that was published in the Banner of Truth magazine. And it's on, um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Go to the website. It's there. And you can get the information uh, there. But until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. God bless.